Tim, one of our elders. It's always good to have an elder here today. There are three of them standing out there. That's really good. I feel protected. God's not going to strike me dead with three elders standing around. Well, I had really hoped to be celebrating Easter together by now. Uh, that just not didn't happen. I don't know about you, but are you tired of this? I got to put my Birkenstocks on this week and put on shorts. Yes. So maybe Barbados is not in my calling after all. So uh, soon I'll be wearing Birkenstocks, and I'm very excited about it. Um, apparently, I'm not the only one that's tired of it because we have a lot of foreigners up here in the county. I've been running into people from Denver. Yeah, they're foreigners. Now that I've lived here a while, I can call them foreigners. They're all over the place. We're hiking, and there they are. We're in the grocery store, and there they are. It's really good to see people coming out again. As we begin to open up as a county, things are changing. Um, just let me caution you to be careful. That's all. Just be careful, but enjoy it. Enjoy it as it comes out. Okay, let me remind you of where we've come. It's kind of been a winding journey. None of us knew this was going to happen when we planned out the year of our preaching series and what we wanted to talk about in Lent and Easter. And I don't know. I think God has a sense of humor because we're in a very different place than we thought we would be. So we started with, um, during Lent, we started looking at the songs of the redeemed. But we started looking at them from Revelation. So remember, John is granted access. The door opens, a portal, if you will, into the heavenly side of our reality. And so he could see things that uh, we don't normally see. We live in, remember, we live in two worlds at the same time. That's why Paul can say that right now we are seated at the heavenlies, and the heavenlies right next to Christ. Uh, but I can't see that. I'm living right here. So, you know, when I look at the scriptures, I look at three different aspects, depending on where I am in the text. And often they overlap. One is you have the aspect of looking at everything from God's perspective. That's very clear, I think, in Revelation. And it's clear in many of the Psalms. They're talking about a king. And next thing you know, the, the whole Psalm morphs into uh, a picture of the coming king. And somehow we've crossed this threshold without even realizing we've done it. So one of the aspects is we're looking at the world and creation as God sees it. But then the second aspect is, and we've done this lately, is some of the scriptures talk about what does it look like when we, uh, before we turn to Christ and we have the mask on. So we have a mask and we can't see things very clearly. That's the second aspect. So some of the scriptures give us that perspective. But then the third perspective is what happens when the mask comes off. So wherever I am in scripture, I'm very conscious of those three different aspects. Sometimes we're seeing it from God's perspective, like John did in Revelation. Sometimes we're seeing it through the eyes of the world that can't see who Christ is. Uh, they can't see the kingdom because they haven't turned to Christ because there's a veil in the way, a mask on. And then the third aspect is when the mask comes off or the veil is removed, then we, begin to, we can begin to see things more clearly. Um, and that's a, that's a journey. That's a long journey. When the mask is on, we have a very worldly perspective. But when the mask comes off, it doesn't get easy. We have a very challenging perspective. We talked about that all last summer at the amphitheater. That's just to remind you that summer's coming. We talked about what happens with life outside the cage. When you step out of the cage, life doesn't get easier. It gets more challenging, actually, because now you're caught between these poles of, of what does it look like to be a little bit blinded and what does it look like from God's perspective and sin's in the middle of all that. 
And so when the mask comes off, life actually gets more challenging. So today I want to look at, especially with us beginning to open up the county, um, what does it look like in crisis and coming out of crisis? What does that look like? Because the doors are starting to open. People are coming back up. Some of the businesses are opening. Opening. I see people constantly when we go hiking and things like that, talking to them. And that's a nice feeling. It's a good feeling. But at the same time, we've got to remember that we're coming out of a crisis. So what does that look like? So I'm going to take a look at Psalm 34 uh, in just a moment. But first, what does crisis look like with a mask on? You guys have a lot of experience with that right now. Because... Most of us haven't lived through a pandemic that we're aware of, and yet we have one. It's all over the news, everywhere you turn. So what does it look like with a mask on? We're driven by fear, right? Just look at any of the media headlines. And man, they are, they are experts in generating panic and fear, and uh, we're driven by fear. Uh, the stresses and the insecurities grow, and they drive us sometimes to, to unhealthy places, um, we're not sure what to do with life. We're terrified for our children or our families elsewhere. Um, found out this week that some of my family members, my children have tested positive for coronavirus, but it's after the fact. They've already passed through it and healed and found out that they had it. They're all wondering why. And, um, uh, and so it drives us to these places, these insecurities. We don't know what to do, the stresses and and I don't know how many conver- co- virtual coffees I've had in the last few weeks where I've helped people calm down just a little bit. Take a deep breath. Don't end the marriage quite yet. Don't give up on the, your job. Don't give up on the finances. Don't, you know, don't let the loneliness overwhelm you. Uh, we also find ourselves struggling to trust God. It's, it's so natural for us. Boy, it's as natural as breathing to put this mask right back on because that's what we're comfortable with. That's where we've come. We don't know what it's like to be only with the Lord like Adam and Eve. We don't know that. And so our natural tendency is to want to go backwards and to put that mask back on and really wonder again, is God sovereign? What do all these verses mean in here about that? As panic sets in, we often find ourselves lashing out at others. Boy, there's a lot of opinions about this. If I, You guys all know I love reading newspaper article, or headlines, uh, media headlines, and and just listening to the panic and and I'm a big fan of just reading social media. I don't get on it very much and put things, but I'm reading what everybody says and you got everybody at one end saying this is a big hoax and we got everybody at the other end saying we're all going to die and and where is it in between all that? Where is it? It drives us. It it exposes the weaknesses that we have. And I've said a couple different times in this series that the day will come when we will be back together. And if we're not careful, that's a risk for us. The whole polarization, the whole that we're going to have to monitor and be very careful with each other because everybody has different opinions. And so crisis drives us to these far, these places where we don't normally go. And it drives us faster to get there. So hopefully we're going to be coming out of this crisis as a, as a church and as a county. And what does it look like to come out of crisis? What do we do now? And I want to take a look at Psalm 34 um, at a crisis in David's life because there's something to be learned from this psalm. The main point of the psalm, before I get into it, is that the troubles and crises that we face should not overwhelm the people of God. They shouldn't. Um, 
we should be the ones who are stable. We should be the ones who have confidence. We should be the ones who trust in the Lord. I've said all along through this time that I'm not going to stop being a pastor because I'm in, we're in the middle of a crisis. Somebody needs me. I told the elders, I'm going to go. And if I die, I die. Um, I quoted Martin Luther a few weeks back. He was in a spot when he was in a plague. And so that's up to the Lord. Uh, I will be responsible. I'm not going to be reckless, uh, but I don't mind being risky. And so Psalm 34 is about crises. It should not overwhelm us. So let me give you the historical setting to Psalm 34. It's a great, great story. I just love it. Psalm 20, it's in First uh, Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. That day, David fled from Saul. Now, why did he flee from Saul? He fled from Saul because he's already been anointed as the next king. And uh, Saul knows that. And Saul's a very jealous king. And he is the king. And he has all the power of the military. He has all the authority of the king. He has a full weight of government behind him. And he decides to kill David. So he starts chasing David all over the place. And so what a bad spot to be in. God said, David, you're the king. You're going to be the king now. And uh, by the way, King Saul, you're no longer going to be the king. David's going to be the king. And so Saul goes after David, tries to kill him. So that day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. Now, Gath is uh, in the Philistine, country of the Philistines. So the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? They had already heard. They don't, the boy, word travels so fast. It's like lightning. Word travels so fast. You want word to travel fast, just start a gossip chain. It's gone. They had already heard that he's the next king. Isn't this David king of the land? Isn't he the one that they were singing about in Israel when they were dancing? Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. So who's more dangerous, Saul or David? They're saying David. So David took these words to heart and was very much afraid. I love that language. He was terrified. He was terrified of the king of Gath because now he's caught. He's caught between Saul, who's trying to kill him, and the Philistines, who recognize he's very dangerous. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. I love that. He pretended to be insane. I would love to see this. This would make a great movie. In fact, when I get to eternity, I want to ask him, this is one of the passages I want to sit down and have a conversation with. How did you do that? While he was in their hands, he acted like a madman. He made marks on the doors of the gate. He let the saliva run down his beard. (laughs) So (laughs) Achish said to his servants, look at the man. He's insane. You think he's a mighty warrior? He's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? So they let David go, verse 1 of chapter 22. He escaped, he left Gath, and he escaped to the cave of Abdullam. And it goes on, um, <clears throat> uh, Saul keeps chasing him, doesn't quite get away. Saul's committed to killing him, so he goes to a Philistine stronghold. And when he gets there, they recognize who he is. And they take him prisoner. He's in their hands. And now he's really caught. Because is Saul going to kill me? Or are the Philistines going to kill me? That's not a good option. Either one of those. And so he, he acts like a madman and manages to escape. Okay. This level of fear lays the foundation for Psalm 34, I think. 
if the superscription is correct. I think it is. It's, it's very good. Starts off the superscription. It's of David. The Psalm of David. When he pretended to be insane. So here we are. All right. So how does this psalm help us? The beginning point for any believer is to praise the Lord both individually. That's where we differ from the world. We can stop and we can praise the Lord. Look at the first three verses of Psalm 34. I extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the voice glorify the Lord with me. So now he's moved from individual fear to reaching out to his friends and other people. Glorify the Lord with me. Now remember, he wrote this to help Israel. All the Psalms are written for the nation to sing together and to have a picture of what the Lord looks like. All the Psalms give us a glimpse in what God is doing. So we together as a people can understand that. So now he's inviting the people with him. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. As we mature in the Lord. Now remember I said when the mask comes off, life doesn't get easier. When he go out of the cage, life doesn't get easier. It gets more challenging. And so as we begin to mature in the Lord, um, this slowly should become automatic. For those of you that are younger in your faith, I get it. I understand the panic. I was there. I panicked when my first wife died. The fear. I just remember the overwhelming fear when all of a sudden she wasn't there. But the years have gone by, and very slowly, the faith, our faith grows and our confidence. That's why having older people in our congregation is so critical, because they show us the way. They know what it means to, to be steadfast and to turn back to the Lord. This should slowly become automatic. He is specifically calling on the afflicted to stop and glorify the Lord. See, verse 2, I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Some of you have lost people, some directly to coronavirus, others to other illnesses, some to suicide. I get it. Some of you have uh, um, seen some of your marriages around you crumble. Those, you're the afflicted. So this is written to you. He's calling on the afflicted to stop and glorify Lord, the Lord. Those in crisis, I think that's who he's talking about, and he uses himself as the example. Those in crisis especially benefit from God's care. So let's stop right now and pray for those who are afflicted. Father, I do lift up those. We all know somebody who has been afflicted through this, this time. Loss of jobs, loss of friends, loss of marriage, loss of health. Father, we stop as David did and we cry out to you. We, we glorify you. We extol your name. We praise you. We put your name on our lips because we believe in you. Okay, David then calls out to the Lord for his help, starting at verse 4. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Now, remember when uh, Moses, when he came down from talking to the Lord, his face was radiant, it glowed. He had to put the mask on because it terrified the Israelites. And so when we looked a few weeks back in the Corinthian passage, 2 Corinthians, when you take the veil off, you begin to reflect the glory of the Lord. And he says, those who look to you, Lord, uh, are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man, he's himself, this poor man called and the Lord heard him. 
this poor man out of his troubles. And then he talks about the rest of us. The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fears them, who fear him, and he delivers them. So David was obviously afraid. Both passages say that. But he cries out to the Lord for help. And his cry led him to regain a sense of confidence. You see, our faith, as we mature, should slowly drive us, drive out this sense of fear. And John says later on that the perfect love casts out fear. And so that should be where we're headed during this time, is less and less afraid with a growing confidence. So let's stop right now and call out to the Lord and ask for his help. So God, as David did, we do seek you. We call out to you because we have confidence in you. And we pray that as our county opens up, that we would not experience more fear, but I pray that we would experience more confidence, more faith in who you are. And Lord, help us to be a great model for all of our neighbors who are struggling as well, because they are. Okay, then in, starting in verse 8, he has a very interesting, uses a culinary metaphor. Taste the Lord and his joy and enjoy his presence. So verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. They don't like anything. Come, my children, listen to me. So you see how we've moved from personal crisis now to community? Together, come, come, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. I will do that. And as a pastor, that's one of my goals. I will teach you the fear of the Lord, that reverence, that awe, that God is worth trusting. He really is. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So the culinary metaphor is very rich. We're invited to taste the Lord. What an invitation. In the ancient world, God's test, they didn't tempt, uh, invite you to come taste them. Remember, the gods were to be placated, not emulated or enjoyed. And yet our God is saying, come, come taste and see. This is an invitation. It's like, a, think of a cook inviting a reluctant eater. Just try it. One of the privileges I have, Nancy, is the best cook I know in the world. And I get invited regularly to be a guinea pig. 99% of the time, that experience is wonderful. Every now and then we look at it and go, uh, yeah, we're not doing that one again. I get invited. Try this. Try this. Try this. Open up our spice drawers. We probably have 8,000 spices. This is what's happening here. It's like a cook. Just try it. Just give it a taste. Just taste the Lord. Just trust. Just try. Try it. As we step out of our homes and we get back into activities and, you know, uh, uh, parks and walks and things like that and go back to stores that are opening, taste the Lord. Just try him. Try it on and see how he is. This will lead us to confidence in God. If we can learn to fear God, what he's arguing here is that there's, <coughs> excuse me, nothing can overturn this kind of faith. Nothing. There's nothing the world can throw at us that would make this happen. I'll give you an example of that in a minute. So, and then as you move through that paragraph, this process naturally leads from us looking at ourselves and our fear 
to begin to look outward at the people around us. I mentioned last week, Jude gave me a great idea. She's doing it, driveway parties, and we've had two or three of them now. And all of a sudden, uh, I invited some people yesterday, and three of them got back to me and said, oh, we can't, we're having a driveway party. Yes, that's what I wanted to hear. They're doing the same thing. As we begin to reach out, that confidence begins to grow and that uh, we begin to move into the lives of others because we've overcome, we start to overcome the fear. That's what happens. We start to overcome the fear. So let's stop and pray for all the divisions that we're experiencing right now. Father, I lift up our culture, our leaders at every level, trying to make tough decisions. Uh, and I just, I'm astounded that people can be so mean. I read on social media the way they treat each other, and my heart just goes out. I read the comments um, on on various websites, and and even my own experience here, the, the terror drives people sometimes to be mean. And Lord, I pray for peace. That's what you desire, shalom, peace. I pray for the divisions. Help us as a church and as believers, wherever anybody listening to this, wherever they are in the world, help us to to slowly reach out and love our neighbors and care for them and invite them to taste. Taste something better than what they've tasted. And then finally, in verse 15, we find out the Lord is on our side. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. Uh, in the final days of Judy, my first wife, in the final days of her life, I went to my pastor at that time and said, is there just one verse I could hang on to? Just one. And he said, here it is. Verse 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A lot of our people are broken right now and are crushed with the fear. And I have memorized that verse and I've said it so many times over the years. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. That doesn't mean you get to escape it. That means he delivers it. You can have confidence that he will deliver you. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. No one. And so God cares for his own. Um, even, um, even the memory of those who reject him are going to disappear. See that language of blotting out? They'll disappear. Even the memory of the people that are so mean and cruel, it'll be gone. God cares even for those who are psychologically, emotionally vulnerable. He listens, he hears, he responds. Those verbs are used all throughout the Bible. In fact, Emmanuel, what is it? God with us. He heard, he remembered his promise, and he responded. He listens, he hears, and he responds. So let's stop and pray for those who are hurting, but yet do not know the Lord personally. Father, all of us have friends and family and neighbors who don't yet know you. They don't even know how to taste of your goodness. 
but we do. We know your goodness. We know you to be a good God. And so, God, we pray and we lift them up and to ask that you would um, you would introduce yourself to them. Thank you. Peter used this psalm in 1 Peter. I'm not going to read all the passages, but in chapter uh, 3 of 1 Peter, he actually quotes this section that I just read. And Peter was written to people who are being afflicted. And he took this psalm. They were in the middle of crisis in the first century. They were being uh, persecuted, <coughs> many of them giving up their lives. And he used this psalm to say, stay focused, keep your eyes on the Lord. Okay, so note the progression here. Some final thoughts. David started with fear. That's where we were. Then he moved to the community support and worship. We've tried to guide you in that way, that path. <clears throat> he then cried out to the Lord for help. And we've done that many times, individually and as a church. And he then invited them to taste the Lord, to enjoy his presence, his calming presence. And finally, he ended with confidence that God is on our side. He is our protector. That's what it means to come out of this. Don't be afraid. I know all the various models, some of them are projecting a big wave to come and all that. And it may happen. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not God. I don't know. But we have nothing to be afraid of. These words are very appropriate today. Let me give you two examples. Some of you remember a few years back when Nepal had the big earthquake. And um, and we actually, as a church, raised a big offering. And, uh, and I carry, hand-carried it over to Nepal. And you know... I was pretty astounded when I got there. Now, picture this. Talk about crisis. I'm texting with all of my friends in Nepal right after the earthquake. Uh, immediately, I was inundated. The earthquake happened on Saturday. And I was inundated with texts from people. And here's what they were describing to me. My house is a pile of rubble. I'm sitting, and it's in the rainy season. I'm sitting out in a field under a tree holding my newborn baby. I have no food, no water. The only water I have is the water here on the ground and the rivers, full of disease. We have no place to go. That was one of my students. Can you imagine that? That's crisis. That's not, that's not fear of something that might happen. That's now being terrified of something that has happened. We have no place to go. We have no home to go to, no food to eat. And all the water we have is filled with disease. And I'm holding my newborn baby. Under a tree. Uh, I have all a bunch of those stories. And within a couple of hours, they all stopped. You know why? All the batteries died. I could tell when they got things back under control several days later because they started texting me again. Um, all the infrastructure was destroyed. I went over there and saw it personally. So they began to come back up. And started texting me, and they had a whole different message. And then three weeks after that, I flew over there, so I was there a month afterwards. And you know what the Christian said to me when I brought the money? We don't want to rebuild our homes. We want to rebuild the homes of our neighbors first. We live in lean-tos and tents, shelters, temporary shelters. Let's rebuild our neighbors who are Hindus. Let's rebuild their homes so we can say to them, give them a taste of the Lord. We can invite them into this taste of the Lord. And so to this day, some of them are still living in temporary shelters 
five years later, some of them. And you know, um, it's fascinating because that is actually the very story of the Lord. I'm going to read to you this short thing out of Second Samuel 7. After the king was settled in his palace, King David, the Lord had given him rest from all of the enemies. The nation is now settled. So David wants to build a temple to God. And here's what God said. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt. We're talking several hundred years now. Okay. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of you, why have you not built me a house? There's a picture right there. Even the Lord in that situation put Israel first. And I'm astounded because the, that's what the people in Nepal did. Let us build. Let us build our neighbor's houses. In the middle of crisis, terror, and fear, they had the right idea. And they've planted a bunch of new churches all throughout the Kathmandu Valley because of that. People coming to Christ. There's an example. As we move out of this, let's don't become more frightened. Let's become more bold. More faithful to reach out to those who are hurting, to help them, to calm the fears, to meet their needs. We have a second example. Thought about it. And thank you for the words, Rob, that you said about mothers. You know who regularly faces deeper levels of crisis? Moms. They're micro crises. A kid falls and breaks their arm. They get an infection. They get a cold. Something happens. They're traumatized at school. And that's one of the things I regularly talk to moms about. They know how to handle crises. They're not afraid because they're bigger than the crises. They're bigger than the crisis that their child goes through. Well, God is bigger than this crisis. So there's two examples right there of what it means to come out of this crisis and be bold in our faith and loving the people around us that are still terrified and frightened. So let's be careful not to place our faith in our leaders they're simply human. Whatever motivates them, we don't need to get into that discussion. Don't let that divide us. Whatever motivates them, they are human. And they're going to make some good decisions. They're going to make some bad decisions. Let's not be frustrated with them. Let's not be afraid to help those around us. Let's not let our faith slip during this time, but continue to work together to strengthen not only our faith, but to help the others around us. So here's my thought. Hang in there. Just hang in there. Don't let this overcome us. Father, thank you. Thanks for being our God, a God who cares, a God who's alive, a God who wants us to step closer to you. Thanks for being that kind of God. We are grateful. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you once again for those of you that are able to and are continuing to give sacrificially. You're blessing our church all of our funds. You're helping us take care of people and we're delighted. I would love to have you come forward right now and take communion, but I can't. So at 11.30 in 30 minutes for two hours, I'm going to serve you communion by the back door. Drive through. I long to look in your eyes. I long just to see your smile, some of your tears, and I long to bless you with the Lord. So uh, get in your car and come over here from 11.30 to 1.30 and I'll meet you at the back door right by the kitchen and serve you communion. Thank you.